That's right. This is what started off as a radio show. It has become an outdoors talk show. I don't know. I mean, it's a podcast. It's a radio show. It's a video show. I've been trying to figure out how to de- describe it to people. And, and everybody keeps saying, well, it's kind of just like a talk show. We guys talk about the outdoors and we've got some great guests. We try to show you some really cool things. If you're watching this, if you're listening, thanks for tuning in on this radio station right here by downloading the podcast or streaming it on demand at sportingjournalradio.com. If you get time, Turn it on YouTube. Watch us. Subscribe to the Sporting Journal Radio YouTube channel because it is the best time of year. We've got some really cool video stuff that we'll be showing you uh, over the next uh, few months, honestly, because we'll be outdoors with with video cameras all the time. So we're going to be showing you, you know, pheasant stuff over the next few weeks because we, we go into the pheasant opener. Of course, lots of waterfowl, probably some bow hunting, and then Asian beetles. It's it's that time of year. Cool. Is that the guy falling out of the fish house? Yeah. <laughs> That's the best audio ever. Uh, it's that time of year, cooler weather, uh, bird migrations, uh, things are starting to happen, leaves change, and then Asian beetles everywhere. I literally just pulled one off the back of my neck right now. I hate those little things. They bite. That's Dan Amundsen right over there. Dan, how are you doing? I'm doing great. All right. Welcome to the show. <laughs> oh, man. We actually have a really interesting one because we're going to talk for 30 minutes about manure on the show this week. What? Yeah, something like that. No, it's actually really interesting. Brandon Butler, who we met at a Globe. Man, we're meeting all these cool people through the Association of Great Lakes Outdoor Writers. If you're an outdoor company or an outdoor content creator, consider joining a Glow. Uh, Dan and I just got named our company here. We're going to be the new communications uh, arm of that organization. We're happy to be a part of it. And we've met some really neat people like Brandon Butler. And Brandon is an interesting guy. You may have heard the story about his cabin getting burnt down a couple of years ago. It is a wild story. Uh, that story's been out there. We're going to talk about uh, to Brandon about something different, a race line. Race line alternative energy and what they're doing with livestock manure, livestock waste, and how they're, they're converting that into a, a gas, a gas like that's very similar to natural gas, and they're using it to power all sorts of things. And then they're also... Restoring prairie, and they're restoring uh, prairie in a lot of places, and they're using that to make renewable energy. We're going to find out how that works and how that's going to benefit wildlife coming up with Brandon a little bit later in the show. We've also got Joe Henry joining us. Oh, man, fall fishing on the Rainy River. How's it going right now? He's going to let us know. And Eric Osberg's going to talk about life in Otter Tail Lakes country this time of year, just all the different opportunities that you have. And uh, Dan and I will talk about our time up there when we did some musky fishing with Randon Olson. And, man, Randon's just been on fire lately. I'll, I think it's – well. We gave him some good mojo. Give him good luck. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. We left it with him. All right, Dan, who is this week's show brought to us by? This week's show is brought to us by Haybell Heights Campground and Resort on Devil's Lake. Book a trip to Devil's Lake at haybellheights.com. Ottertail Lakes Country, find your inner otter at ottertaillakescountry.com. Lake of the Woods Tourism. Lake of the Woods is the walleye capital. Plan a trip for this fall or winter at lakeofthewoodsmn.com. <laughs> okay. Onyx Hunt, know where you stand with Onyx. 
And Prairie Sportsman, watch episodes anytime at the Prairie Sportsman YouTube channel or check your TV guide for rerun times. So Prairie Sportsman is something that Dan and I do along with Dylan Kerfman and Cindy Dorn with Pioneer PBS. We're really proud of that TV show. Uh, going to find out if we're going to win some more Emmys next weekend. Uh, that's just one of the things we do. Of course, this show right here, and then Dan and I are carrying around cameras all the time. We're doing uh, a lot of filming. We're doing a lot of still photography, a lot of this and that and there and the other things. And we were honored once again. we got a couple of photos and some calendars this year the new pheasants forever calendar i uh, got a picture of some some hen pheasants that made that calendar thank you very much pheasants forever i'm very honored for that and then i just found out um gonna be in another calendar in uh otter tail lakes country they have a new calendar coming out for uh otter tail lakes country they had a we are water minnesota photography contest they narrowed it down to 24 photos over 470 votes were cast over the last month the winners of each of the 12 categories will be compiled into a year of water otter tail county photo calendar and the calendars will be on sale in november on the ottertaillakescountry.com website so thank you very much marie and eric and otter tail lakes country of course uh, we'll talk more about otter tail lakes country with eric osberg coming up here in just a little bit and uh next week dan we're going to be down in worthington once again for the governor's pheasant opener have you been down there to hunt with us yet i've hunted worthington but i haven't hunted the pheasant the governor's opener. Okay. Yeah. You've been down there. I've hunted Worthington. Yeah. It's a neat area. It is. Uh, um, you know, there's some guys down there, Nobles County Pheasants Forever, uh, Scott Rawl. They've been really working hard because there's not a lot of public land down there. Some great habitat, but not a lot of public land. And uh, they've been doing what they can to increase the hunting opportunities for people uh, to get on some public land. And uh, they're going to dedicate some more public land while we're down there this weekend. And then we're going to learn a little bit more about the Worthington Wells and uh, there's been a lot of people involved with that pheasants forever a lot of other organizations and they they essentially created all this public land around their wellhead so the the where the their water supply for worthington comes from it's all protected by public hunting land essentially so not only do we get an opportunity to find places to go chase pheasants around and deer and, and other wildlife and and the non-game species have a place to live and eat and and reproduce and survive in but they're protecting their their water supply down there as well too so some really neat stories that we're going to learn more about and probably we'll probably get to knock down a bird or two we'll see it's a little early you know openers are always fun there's some birds but some some going to be some young birds while we're out there probably some roosters are going to be tough to identify i heard a couple of guys talking about some really late hatches recently so we'll find out more next week while we're down there all right coming up we are going to talk to brandon butler when we come back on sporting journal radio Northern Minnesota's Walleye Factory is a year-round world-class fishing destination. The perfect getaway this summer is just a short drive to Lake of the Woods. Fish Big Traverse Bay, the Rainy River, or visit the unique Northwest Angle. To catch big fish, you have to go where the big fish are. Plan your trip to Lake of the Woods at lakeofthewoodsmn.com. That's lakeofthewoodsmn.com. All right, we're back. Thanks for tuning in on this station right here by downloading the podcast or tuning in. Wait a minute. Said that already. We're back. Thanks for tuning in on this radio station right here by streaming this on demand at sportingjournalradio.com. Maybe you downloaded it or maybe you're watching it on YouTube. Thank you very much. Recently, we spent some time in Branson, Missouri, and we hadn't hadn't been down there. Uh, for, well, I hadn't been down in that part of the world since I was real, real little before I could really remember anything. Uh, but we had a great time. We got to fish Table Rock. We got to uh, hang out with a bunch of really cool outdoor uh, enthusiasts who are also creators in this world as part of the Aglow Conference, the Association of Great 
Great Lakes Outdoor Riders. Met a lot of really cool new people, and uh, that's where we kicked off a new job for for Dan and I as uh, communications. Do we know what? Do we remember what the title of this is? A communications team, communications director, communications arm of a glow, something like that. King, I think. King, yes, the communications king, king for uh, for a glow. And our next guest here on the show is a communications director for Raceline, and uh, we're going to learn a little bit about what Raceline is, what they're doing, because to me, it seems like they're kind of uh, the forefront in the in the agricultural world as far as uh, renewable energy as well they're kind of doing some innovative things and we're going to find out all about that right now with brandon butler brandon thanks for coming on the show i really appreciate you guys having me the uh prairie sportsman for a company that's doing prairie restoration makes a lot of sense yeah absolutely you know on on the tv show we talk about prairie restoration all the time and conservation and the benefits of uh of grasses and not just for wildlife but clean water and everything else and we'll talk about more about that coming up a little bit later uh but first of all it was it was good it was good to hang out with you a little bit down there in branson that was a good time this year it was uh I have made the last 13 conferences in a row. I'm a past president of Aglow. It's an organization that I believe a lot in and very excited to see new folks like you guys and uh, quite a few others coming into the fold and taking leadership roles. Excited to have you guys doing the communication stuff. We're looking forward to it. And it's interesting. You know, I was, I've had a lot of long phone calls with Mark Smith lately, and uh, he brought up you as an example as somebody about, uh, you know, that – you don't always know who is going to all of a sudden join a glow and really hit it off. And it's going to benefit you. It's going to benefit me. It's going to benefit a lot of people. And he brought up you as an example of how uh, things kind of changed for you a little bit when you joined a glow. Well, I, I started off freelance writing back in 2006 and it's never to this day been my full-time income, but I think the freelance work I've done, has benefited and impact every professional position I've had. And I've been able to move up uh, through a number of positions, executive director of a nonprofit back into the corporate world that has a, a conservation slant to it as well. So those communication skills, even if they're not your primary uh, duty, they sure do help in no matter what it is you're doing. Well, it's just a great way to just meet people, get story ideas, see some cool places, enjoy some unique outdoor opportunities. And and we have no fun at those conferences either. It's never, never <laughs> a good time. It's uh, it's always a good time. So uh, fr- from a glow and all those other things that you've done uh, now with Raceline Alternative Energy, uh, what is Raceline? How long ago did you start with them? Well, I've been with Raceline just about four years Uh, I've known Rudy Raceline, the founder, quite a bit longer. This is his second major company to start. He has a a parent company, if you will, called Raceline & Associates that has constructed most of the aluminum beverage can manufacturing facilities on the planet. He likes to say say if you've uh, drank out of an aluminum can, there's about an 85% chance it came off a Raceline assembly line. Hmm. So he, he's a very dedicated conservationist, has quite a bit of uh, hunting property of his own, two, two, uh, two places in Missouri, one a couple thousand acres up on the Iowa border, one down in the Ozarks, and wanted to spend his remaining years doing something that really gives back to the environment, gives back to wildlife and, and habitat that's brought him so much joy, but he wanted to do it through a, a market-based approach, and Rudy has a really interesting 
uh, start in life. He, he was an immigrant when he was eight years old after World War II. He had been living in displacement camps in Europe and made it over to St. Louis, became successful in pretty much everything he's done. Uh, but he, he's never lost his Euro European uh, ties and spends time over there doing business and realized that anaerobic digestion of waste products in agriculture were already producing energy at a common scale in Germany and, and other progressive countries. So having bought this land in northern Missouri with quite a few uh, Smithfield farms around, there's actually nine farms up there that produce about two million pigs per year. He thought there'd be a way to uh, bring that technology to Missouri, and he founded Raceline Alternative Energy a little over 10 years ago just to do that. And today we've got 83 lagoons covered in North Missouri alone. We've done projects in a number of other states as well. We've moved into Iowa, uh, but we're in a joint venture with Smithfield Foods, the largest hog producer on the planet and uh, an investment firm called TPG, and that JV is called Monarch Bioenergy, where we come into these large-scale farms, but we tarp over the manure lagoons, we capture the greenhouse gases that would otherwise be going into the atmosphere, contributing to climate change, especially methane, which is one of the most dangerous. We take that methane and we upgrade it to renewable natural gas and, inject, and inject it directly into the natural gas grid. Hmm. Uh, we call that Horizon One. <clears throat> but what I'm really excited to talk to you guys about is Horizon 2. All right. Well, I do want to just touch on that real quick, just to, uh, you explained it very well there, but I just want to give people a chance just to wrap their brains around that if they, if they, if they haven't heard of this before. So first of all, you hear about methane being bad all the time. And that's one of the, one of the arguments, you know, oh, we need to stop you know, having all this cattle on the landscape out there because it's releasing all this methane gas. Well, this essentially solves that problem, right? You're capturing all that methane and turning it into a renewable energy that we can use. And you're doing it by having this lagoon with that, with the manure or the waste, and then you're just covering it, right? Removing the oxygen and then collecting the gases as that waste breaks down. That's exactly right. Uh, it's a pretty simple process that nature does most of. So in every one of the barns, you've got approximately a thousand hogs. There's eight barns per lagoon. So you've got hogs that are growing up to about 255 pounds. All they do is eat and go to the bathroom. And that, like manure, <laughs> that manure is, uh, it goes through a slotted floor. It's scraped. Um, and, and recycled water is used to flush it into that lagoon that you see there that's covered. Uh, as nature breaks down those solids, the gases are released. Like I said, historically, they'd go into the atmosphere, contribute uh, in a number of negative ways to our environment. Climate change, the odor coming off of those lagoons for anybody that lives downwind on any given day, <laughs> um, the opportunity for spillage, uh, Rainfall is about a million gallons per lagoon per year that needs uh, fossil fuel energy to be cleaned before it can be land applied. We stop that from happening. Uh, there's all kinds of environmentally and uh, ecologically uh, beneficial reasons this is great. It's also great economically. Uh, we have created essentially a new market in agriculture. People often hear about, read about, see about all the uh, urban decay the way our cities are falling apart in certain areas, South Chicago, East St. Louis, 
Uh, but you don't hear as much about the small towns throughout the heartland that were once booming and thriving. And now you drive through and it's boarded up town squares, crumbling over buildings, closed medical clinics. There hasn't been very much innovation in those communities. And now that we're bringing biogas, renewable natural gas production to agriculture and creating this whole other side of a farmer's potential, uh, we're able to keep guys and gals on their home farms, where they want to live, around their family, and they can have high-paying technical jobs. And, um, and this isn't geographically specific. I mean, this could work. I mean, obviously, you're in, you're in Missouri, but when we're talking about farmers in Minnesota, Wisconsin, the Dakotas, Iowa, this is, all, this is, this is kind of ground zero for the, this type of operation, isn't it? Absolutely. So on the manure-only side, it's already happening in quite a few other states, most states. Uh, New England, all the way to California. California is big. We're actually credited for our gas uh, by the California Low Carbon Fuel Standard. So people are often, well, how do you put gas into a pipeline in Missouri, but it gets to California? Well, it never does. But we get monitored for how much we're putting in, and that's still calculated to offset diesel use. So Mm. the renewable energy that we're making from a waste product that would otherwise be damaging is offsetting the use of another uh, product that is also environmentally damaging, which is you know fossil fuel based petroleum products. Well, and the bottom line is people can make you're essentially this is this is a finan- it's financially feasible to do this. Like money's the biggest motivator, right? And if you can show these guys, these producers that they can make money or or not lose money and also be benefiting the environment at the same time, it's a win for everybody. And uh, so this, this is, I think that's, you know, and always the name of the game is uh, showing people that they can, uh, that, it may, that it makes sense financially at the same time. It, it does, uh, but it only at a large scale at this point. The industry, it's certainly still in its infancy. You're starting to see companies like Shell, Exxon, Mobil, Chevron, like all the big oil and gas companies are moving into this space. Uh, five years ago, they weren't attending any of the Renewable Natural Gas Coalition conferences or American Biogas Council conferences, but they're all there now. These conferences continue to sell out. People talk about this as if it's a, a new gold rush. And, hmm. you know, people are trying to gobble up the biggest players, but there's so many small farms that can benefit from this once the technology becomes affordable enough at a smaller scale to sure. be implemented. If you guys know a real smart engineer, the three of us can become billionaires. If we could figure figure out how to make this applicable to your home. Like if you go on Amazon right now, you can find these like blow up tent digesters for 600 bucks that go in your backyard. I wouldn't suggest that. There's a lot of dangers (laughs) with flammable gas. But the idea of us being able to take our grass clippings, our food waste, our human waste, and put it into a centralized digester in our backyard or in a community that shares one and then returns power to the house off your own waste. That's where we're headed in the future. Yeah. I, th- I think that is exactly right. It is where we're headed to you know, more renewable sources, more renewable sources that make sense, you know, is definitely the direction we need to go. And while this is all fascinating and good for the environment, let's talk about how this is going to bet, you know, how Raceline is benefiting wildlife and, and get into the prairie restoration. So that's, that's horizon two that you were going to bring up. Yeah, that's right. So Raceline was just awarded one of the top 14 grants from the USDA climate smart commodities partnership grants. So essentially the USDA offered up a billion dollars to be applied for uh, 
the requests were so overwhelming that they actually got 20 billion in requests and upped and up the the give to 2.8 billion. Hmm. Four, 14 grants fell in the the top level of 70 million to 95 million with Raceline being awarded 80 million dollars. Uh, we have 14 partners, including Iowa State, University of Missouri, University of California, Davis, Smithfield, uh, a number of the commodity groups like the Iowa Soybean Association and uh, the Nature Conservancy. Uh, we've had support from Quail Forever, Pheasants Forever, NWTF. It's been remarkable. Uh, we put an unbelievable proposal together and were awarded that $80 million, which will afford us the opportunity over five years to restore 100,000 acres uh, 50,000 of cover crops, 50,000 of prairie. And of course, that prairie is going to be incredible habitat for quail, pheasants, all upland nesting birds, all other wildlife. Uh, unfortunately, we continue to see the decline of the, the monarch, ho- hopefully by bringing back the prairie, which is the most decimated landscape in North America. Tall grass prairie has less than 0.1% of its virgin stand remaining. And we're going to have an opportunity to, to restore hopefully millions of acres over time. But through this grant, we'll be able to get the first 100,000 acres on the ground, prove out the concept of being able to sustainably harvest that, and then putting it into our digesters mixed with manure as a feedstock for renewable natural gas production. Yeah, so I, I just want to kind of break that down just a little bit because immediately when I hear about uh, incentives for putting grass on the ground. It, I think of the CRP program. So mm-hmm. I was trying to figure out what the difference is between that and this and, and how it's going to work. And obviously with CRP, you're not out there really, you're not harvesting the grass, you're planting gla- grasses uh, for wildlife, but also for soil health and water, uh, water quality and things like that. Um, but this program allows you, you're, you're actually going to harvest some of this grass out there. Yeah. So the week before we were in a glow, I was in D.C. meeting with congressmen and senators uh, lobbying for a, a small change in CRP management. So currently, if you're if you're enrolled in CRP, you have to manage that land. Right. It's not like it's not like you just plant it and let it go for 10 years. You have to burn it. You have to mow it. You have to do something. The, the hang-up is, is you can't make additional revenue off of it if you're getting the incentive for being in the program from the government. With the exception of in severe drought conditions, it can be harvested and used uh, for hay for cattle. Well, my argument is the government continues to look for opportunities to create renewable energy to lower our carbon footprint. And we've got 22 million acres of feedstock available. So if mm-hmm. CRP has to be burned, if it has to be mowed, and we don't want to change the, the time frame or the amount. You know, we're talking about taking one third of the stand every three years in a rotational way. Then let's allow that CRP to be harvested and put into digesters to create renewable energy. We've got 22 million acres now. I think the max allotment of CRP historically was 37 million. It's never been achieved. Um, we know we can get back up above 25 million. And if farmers, landowners can take those marginal acres, those acres that shouldn't be planted in corn or soybeans, but are because they don't have any alternative revenue sources and can make additional income off of CRP land by also being in, in you know, the carbon market by sequestering carbon in their soil and being credited for that, for protecting our waterways with prairie CRP and being credited for that. 
and then being able to harvest that CRP and sell it to us or a company like us who can then turn it into renewable natural gas, then then the economics work out in favor of the farmer and the landowner and, and society benefits from the renewable energy produced. So should that happen, how does a <clears throat> farmer, they essentially, they, they would be able to harvest that grass and then and then transport it to one of your facilities or how would, how would do you foresee that happening? How would that work? Yeah, that's how it would work, but it's going to take a while. So as I said, we're right now building the very first um, grass and manure mixture capable digester in Scott County, Iowa at, at the Seavers family farm by Davenport. Um, we've got a number of gas purification sites across Northern Missouri, eight of them, uh, one in Iowa at this point. We talked about other states earlier that we've done work in Wisconsin, New Mexico, Texas, Kansas, California. Um, but for this to be feasible, for it to work, a couple of things have to happen. First, the EPA have, has to clear a pathway for uh, prairie plants and cover crops to be digested and, and turned into gas. It's just kind of a, a fix in the language. Cellulosic material has been turned into RNG for a long time. Uh, so we're kind of waiting on that. And then we've got to be able to be in proximity of a gas purification skid to make it uh, worthwhile to make the gas without being discounted too much credit for the diesel we would have to use to transport it to the facility. So the low carbon fuel standard, it, it, it calculates the value of your gas based on a number of inputs. So how much carbon is used to produce your gas, how much transportation is required to get your gas into the system, and how is your gas ultimately used? So as companies work towards like carbon neutral or carbon negative or just carbon reductions, our company is already producing carbon intensity scores of about negative 450. Wow. Negative, four, negative 452 is our lowest. And that's because almost no carbon is used in making our gas because gravity and uh, recycled water push it into the lagoon, nature takes over. A little bit of electricity is used to move the gas from under the cover to the purification spot and then into the pipeline. But if you start moving gas in, in tanks or if you're you know, having to add a lot of diesel usage or move your gas a, a far away, then that'll lower your score because of the carbon that you're using to, to produce your gas. So it's a, it's a chess game of, you know, you gotta move one piece and make sure you're moving the right pieces. Uh, but eventually there's going to be a lot more gas purification skids all over the Midwest and the country. So hopefully uh, farmers will be able to enroll as, as it becomes viable in their neighborhood. So is this something where you'd be digesting the uh, grass and manure or one or the other? Together. Together. So at that, uh, yeah. So it'll be a percentage base, but a higher percentage of grass. Uh, cover crops are going to be a big part of this. So the prairie is part of it, but the number of cover crops uh, are significantly higher than the prairie. So cover crops, I wish I could remember the statistic, but it's less than 15% of row crop land goes into cover crops currently. And that's just because it doesn't work out economically for the mm -hmm. farmer. Um, you know, they're, they're wanting to plant cover crops because it holds their soil in place. It, it slows erosion, it stops runoff, and it builds new, healthier soil. But economically, they're, they're just barely getting by. So if we can now say, go ahead and plant your cover crops, you're going to get X amount for the benefits that you're providing as far as soil erosion and, and, and runoff protection. 
but also we're going to buy those cover crops from you by the ton and feed them into our digester. Uh, then it becomes a no-brainer for the farmer to plant cover crops because it's a secondary. They're going to make two two crops off their farm and two payments per year instead of one. Yeah. So you're looking at so if a farmer's listening right now and maybe he's got grass on private land, could he he could he could take that and start selling that to you now, right? I mean, that's if you guys had that program, if if you were ready yeah. to take some. If he lived in southeast Iowa or northwest Missouri. And then down the line then, if if somebody says this is this is something I would mind wouldn't mind getting into in the future, what are you telling those guys? Future's coming. You know, it's going to take a while for this to spread out. Hopefully this five-year grant proves uh, how viable this is. And it's an open market. So once it proves viable, I suspect we'll have competition and And, it'll start spreading. And then you would just tell them if they've got some marginal land that they're struggling to grow corn corn and beans on, could be a a potential place for a cover crop or or prairie restoration there, that they could could essentially plant if it's – if, you know, if it's prairie grasses that are coming up year after year, you're planting essentially planted once and then being able to harvest that every so often. And you could it's an it's a way to make money off land that you may be struggling to make money off of otherwise. That's exactly right. In those marginal lands, it would be prairie. And when you factor you know, your return, you have to factor the input costs. So if you're saving on gas and time, and tractors and labor uh, by not having to plant and harvest, you have to factor that into your equation as well. Uh, you might not make as much per acre as you would on corn in those marginal acres, but when you do all the math and take out all those inputs, you're probably going to come out ahead in the prairie game. What else? So to, if, if somebody says, yeah, I like this, how, how can they help to move this forward to make it more of a possibility in the future? Well, it's just going to be, I think a lot of farmers still rely on, you know, talking to their neighbor over the fence. Mm-hmm. It's going to take, you know, word of mouth, no ads in magazines, no radio shows with me on it are, are going to change all these farmers' minds. But except this once, one. Except so. for this one. Uh, <laughs> when, when uh, you know, when Farmer Smith enrolls and his neighbor finds out, you know, how he afforded that brand new tractor and he's like, you got to check this out. It works. And then, you know, once that starts happening and they start talking amongst themselves, uh, then I think we'll see a significant uh, advancement in this technology. This Partnerships for Climate Smart Commodities, it, that that's new, right? And then how, where did that money come from? And then is that something that anybody can, you know, any producer can apply for every year? Or is it a five year? Or is it a one time only? What's that program about? No. Well, this was a one-time only for now. That It's a first-time uh, program that came from the USDA. It's being administered through NRCS. And um, as I said, they, you know, I listened to Secretary Vilsack, you know, United States Ag Secretary, when he announced it. And he said, we were hoping that we would get a, mil- a billion dollars in asks. We put a billion out there. We didn't know if there'd be enough ask for that. Well, they got $20 billion in ask. And they ended up giving out 2.8 billion. So there's a lot of innovation going on in agriculture right now. There's a lot of people looking for opportunities to to move forward. So I suspect that this type of uh, granting program will persist in the future. Uh, another one just came across my desk for 
Uh, there's 500 million, I believe, for uh, organic fertilizer, like uh, domestic made fertilizer because of the supply chain issues, which we're looking at doing that as well. That's part of our initial grant. We're going to be extracting ammonia from these manure legumes and, and making organic fertilizer from this waste stream as well. Hmm. You know, I never really imagined uh, having a, a half hour interview about manure being so interesting here on the show, but <laughs> this stuff's, I mean, it's, it's kind of fascinating because I think it is the way of the future and we have to find ways, especially when we're talking about using the land, we have to find ways to use the land the right way. Not saying it's not being used the right way now, but we're going to have to constantly make it better, particularly when you talk about soil health and water, water quality and things like that. And of course, for me, wildlife habitat is, uh, is what really hits close to home for me. So I love prairie restoration stories. And, and, and especially when you can take something that's been considered waste and turn it into energy, uh, and like anything else, when things change, it always is going to be expensive at first, but if it makes sense and people like it, the cost will come down on it and it'll eventually become a way of life and everybody will get used to it. It just might take a while. Uh, so all yeah. this stuff is fascinating. Well, I appreciate you letting me talk about manure for 30 minutes. <laughs> it's definitely better than when you're trying to give a, a, a sponsored presentation at a breakfast or a lunch. <laughs> yeah. uh, Everybody's but, eating. You know, What's yeah. interesting is, is my, you know, I, I share that affinity for wildlife and habitat that you have. I mean, that's been my whole life. And I spent five years prior to this job as the executive director of the Conservation Federation of Missouri. So the state's hmm. largest affiliated conservation organization. And when I left to go to work for this company, some people found out I was going to be doing work with these large CAFOs, large scale livestock production. And they thought, you know, I'd totally turned on them you know how, how could you go from conservation to right. you know large-scale agriculture and i think it's amazing how much uh progression we're seeing in agriculture the efforts that they're making to be better and i've really found it enjoyable to help push push that envelope and also to share the stories and give credit where credit is due because we wouldn't be able to do this if it wasn't for the cooperation and partnership with Smithfield. Um, they're looking for ways all the time to make uh, improvements in their processes. And, and by covering these legumes and producing renewable energy, they're also doing prairie restoration on the acres that they own in, in North Missouri. Uh, so there's a lot of agriculture organizations out there that have gotten a black eye over the years that are um, you know, in need of a little pat on the back, I think, for a lot of the work that they've been doing to, to make their processes drastically better. And I'm enjoying being part of that. Yeah, Minnesota's had its fair share of, of farmer bashing uh, mm -hmm. over the years. And there's uh, there's definitely a lot of farmers out there that are doing what they can to make, uh, you know, do do what's best for the land and best for the wildlife and do some some best practice best practices on the farm for conservation and land stewardship. So uh, they, they don't always get uh, the recognition that they deserve uh, at times. So. No, I mean, there's a bad apple in most baskets, sure. but for the most part, it, you want to show me somebody who loves the land, introduce yeah. me to a farmer. That's, that's exactly right. I mean, they're the ones out there living, living on it and, and in it every day, pretty much. That's right. It's yeah. their livelihood. All right, Brandon. Well, we're, where, what else do you want to say about Raceline or what, what do you want people to know or where can we find out more information about all this? Just that we're very dedicated to conservation. That's a, a role that 
I enjoy leading at the company. You know, we're big supporters of pheasants and quail forever, uh, National Wild Turkey Federation, the Nature Conservancy. Uh, we just made a $1 million donation to the Missouri Prairie Foundation. Uh, Rudy and I both sit on the board of the Iowa Wildlife Federation. We're big supporters of the Conservation Federation, National Wildlife Federation. So uh, we're a renewable energy production company that's made up of a bunch of engineers and hunters and anglers who, who love the land and love the landscape and are working with agriculture to, to hopefully make our country a better place, make the world a better place and, and take care of all the critters that we know about and the ones that we don't know about. Because there's tens of thousands of uh, species of birds and insects and, and minnows that are in peril that uh, you've never heard of. We know about deer, quail, pheasants, turkeys, all the big game that we hunt. Um, but there's so much wildlife to be taken care of that you've never heard of and, and prairie really can help in a, in a big way. So hopefully this takes off and, and we'll bring those ecological services and wildlife benefits to renewable energy production. No, this is great. See, this is, this is what I love about a glow because I, I, you know, I'm sure I would have heard about you eventually, but I hadn't until, uh, until, yeah, we're eating breakfast and you're talking about cow manure or pig. <laughs> no, it was, it was lunch or lunch. Yeah. Whatever it was, but, yeah. uh, no, this is great. Uh, keep up the good work there and, uh, keep us mm -hmm. updated. Let's do this again and, uh, kind of keep us, keep us updated on, on the progress and how things are going and, and, um, what's down, what's happening down the line. We'll do you go into the, uh, governor's pheasant hunt down in Worthington. I sure am. You coming? I just got my invitation. Oh, there you go. Right. Oh. <laughs> yeah, I'm coming. I'm excited, man. Perfect. Good. Well, we'll Good. see it. See you down there. Yeah. And, uh, so, uh, the name is race line, but it's spelled R O E S L E I N and then alternative energy. So race line, alternative energy. Yeah. I had to practice that. Yeah. For... It's, it's uh, nobody ever gets it right, <laughs> but you can't convince the founder to change the name yeah. when it's his name. It doesn't matter. And honestly, once you realize it's race line, it's easy. Like it's easy to say. And then just once you realize how to say it, you know, that it's spelled differently, but once you realize how to say it, it's easy enough at that point. Raceline. Very good. Brandon Butler, Communications Director, Raceline Alternative Energy. Thanks for the time today on the show. Appreciate the opportunity. Devil's Lake is legendary, and this summer has been legendary for walleyes. Don't miss out. Call Haybell Heights Campground and Resort today to book one of their modern cabins on East Bay. The cabins are furnished with a full bathroom, kitchen, and all the amenities like high-speed internet and are clean following CDC guidelines. Staying at Haybell Heights gives you full access to a private boat launch, fish cleaning station, and beach area. Learn more at haybellheights.com. That's haybellheights.com. Plan your trip to legendary Devil's Lake today. Well, it's so easy to talk about hunting this time of year, but man, fishing is uh, just starting to get really good again as well, too. And we're going to talk fishing up on the Rainy River and Lake of the Woods right now with Joe Henry from Lake of the Woods Tourism. Joe, how you doing? Hey, Brad, I'm doing good, man. Happy fall, baby. I can't, I can't believe it's finally here. Now, I just want time to slow down just a little bit. Like I try to the, stretch the fall out. Now, man, the smell, the leaves, the migration, the hunting, the fishing. I mean, it isn't, isn't October an incredible month? 
I love it. Uh, I love it. It's probably the best month of the year. And uh, I'm looking forward to hunting and fishing up at Lake of the Woods this year. We're, we're working on a trip to get up there later this month, hoping we can get that nailed down here and uh, and probably do some food. We'll probably go up to the angle and do some fishing up at the angle. But I think we're going to have to fish the Rainy River while we're up there too, Joe. You got to give it a rip. I mean, I'll tell you what, here's the deal. There's been shiners, emerald shiners. You know, they make that annual run up the Rainy River and that's what's what's going on. And when you talk about that fall run in the rainy is that those shiners are coming up, clouds of them. You can see them on your graph, clouds of them. And then what happens is those walleyes are always close behind. I mean, the, the walleyes follow the bait. So this is the, rainy run, the, the, the fall run on the rainy river and it's going on right now. And uh, there's, there's a lot of fish being caught. And uh, you know what? Uh, every day is a little bit different. Sometimes those fish are holding for a few days in the same spot. Sometimes they're moving through and, and you just have to intercept them. Some of the, some of the techniques, people look for bait you know, looking for the shiners on your graph. Um, otherwise, I suggest doing a milk run. You know, you, you try one stretch of the river, you try a few different spots. If you're not getting her done, you can either, you know, boat upstream or, or put the boat on a trailer or really make a, a long, you know, a, a longer drive and try a whole different stretch. But, you know, I, I, I just sometimes, Brett, I see people going out, uh, you know, across from the resort area on Wheeler's Point. They go by that orange sock and they, they anchor up and they're sitting there all day and they're hoping those fish come through and, I'll dig it if they do a good deal. And if they don't come through, I'm like, man, I, I think I would have moved a few times anyway, you know? Right. Well, I suppose you, you figure people are going in and out of the store. You can stand by the door to catch them on their way through. But uh, sometimes they're already in there and you got to go That's find it. them. You got to go find them in the, you know, in the beer aisle or something. But I'll tell you, though, you know, those, those fish are moving a lot, you know, in that river. And um, it, it, if the fish are moving, that could be a really good technique, just anchoring up on a, a good edge an eddy you know a point a hole i mean all those all those areas are actually pretty darn good spots to, to set up and you know most people are jigging this time brett but if you're not finding fish i have no problem pulling a crankbait against the current and you know either pulling along an edge or um in some cases you, you know a flat sometimes they're just laying out in a flat if you got a flat that's seven to twelve seven to fifteen feet of water you just you'll see those fishes laying on the bottom kind of spread out in the little sand rifts. What happens in a river sometimes is that with that current going down, you know, you got little rifts in the sand, the sand kind of comes up and it goes down and it comes up and it goes down. So when you go over that area with your sonar, the sonar catches the two humps of the sand, but then that whole little depression in between those two little humps, even if it's just a, a one foot depression, for instance, that the sonar doesn't see that because it catches the two humps. So those, that's where those walls are laying out of the current. You can't see them. So sometimes you pull cranks through a flat like that and you start whacking fish. You're like, what the heck's wrong with my electronics? Well, nothing's wrong. It's just that they're laying in those little sand rifts. It's hard to see them. So if you were going to pull cranks, Joe, would you do what we did last spring and, you know, run a, a shallow diving crank with a three-way and a weight? I think that's one great way to go. You can always, you can go up and down with the structure like we did. Remember how we, we'd slide up to the shoreline and it'd be a little bit shallower. And, and then, you know, we'd slide off that bank, just kind of exploring, looking for fish. Hey, let's slide out and there's a hole coming up. There's 18 feet. Let's slide off that bank and go, let's go pull through that hole. When you do that with that weight on there, that three-way rig, you might have a, you know, two, three ounce weight off of a, you know, a, a one or two foot dropper, maybe a one foot dropper. And then, um, and then you have a six foot piece of mono or fluorocarbon with a shallow diving crankbait. And you can just almost work that almost like a bottom bouncer and a, a spinner, but you can just kind of pull that up, upstream and really work the, the current. Now, if you're in a flat area, now that's where you can pull a shad wrap or a husky jerk or a, you know, a, I, I like using those, a rip shad from, uh, 
uh, gosh, I forget the name of the company, but anyway, uh, uh, a rip shed. And uh, yeah, I mean, I, covering water is not a bad thing if you are not connecting and jigging. Now, if you find the fish, you know, they're in a certain area, you know, then you can, uh, you know, anchor up and whack them. But uh, a, lot, a lot of ways to get her done. You know what I mean? Acme. Refront or rip shed? Yeah, a, a refront or rip shed. That's what it is. Sorry. Yep, an Acme refront or rip shed. Yep. And that rip shed, I'll tell you, I, I should not tell anybody in case I ever fish against you in a tournament, but man, I'll tell you what. That uh, that rip shad that's got that red head and that uh, kind of that shiny dark gold body. Ooh, that's a good one. If you were going to run a jig with plastic on it, you know, an artificial uh, with a jig, what would you? What would your first piece of plastic that you put on? What I'd probably run a little bit heavier jig, and you know, the the current I think has gone a little bit. It's down now compared to what it was. So based on the current, you know, what I need a quarter ounce jig or a half ounce jig. It just depends on where you're in the river and what's happening. You just got to read the water. But I would use the lightest jig as I can, but I want to be able to stay down by the bottom. And then I personally like uh, I would use something like a a chartreuse with the ribs on them. Um, to be honest with you, right now my first choice would be a like a. A gold, <laughs> yeah. There you go, right there. Yep, that one with a paddle tail. Danny's got it. Is that a bee fishing or what is that? A Berkeley? Oh yeah, bee fishing. Bee fishing, yeah. Yep, bee fishing. There you go. We can hear you. I, 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 I think mic. that's a great color. I'll tell you the other one. I like. I like pink and you know, and white on on the rainy. And then you know, the other thing is, oftentimes when I'm jigging in the fall, I won't use any plastic at all. What I'll use is I'll use a, you know an emerald shiner. I'll use a live shiner if they have them. Um, I, I do like the shiner just because that's what's running up the river. And then what I'll do is, you know, my, my colors of jig, it's, it's stained water in the rainy river. So if, if anglers that are listening to this have fished the river, I'm not telling them anything that they don't know. But, you know, things like um, gold and pink, gold and orange. Um, they have this jig. It's like a Tom's Tackle has this jig. It's almost like a, a prism jig that has different angles to it. But that, that and gold and orange, gold and pink, um, they have one that's a, a gold a glow white strip and a pink strip. And I'll tell you, I love that jig. Uh, that's a, that's kind of a go-to jig. And then either I'm going to thread that jig on, so I, I put that jig hook through the mouth, out the gill, slide it all the way up to the jig head, and then put the point of the jig about halfway through that body of the shiner. Otherwise, this time of year, I will use a stinger hook. So I'll take a, you know, a stinger hook. All that is is a small treble hook with a, you know, a, a, two, a two or three inch piece of like fluorocarbon. And you just hook that over the hook of the jig. What that does then is when you hook your minnow through the, the mouth, you got that long emerald shiner hanging there. You can take that treble hook and stick that in the back uh, and just in front of the tail, you know, of, uh, of that shiner. And that way with those short biting walleyes, you're going to hook those things with a, uh, with a treble hook that, with that stinger rig. Joe, uh, Joe Henry, our guest, Lake of the Woods Tourism. Joe, if you missed it, last week we had Ali Shakur on the show, and uh, he talked about some pretty interesting walleye research. You can watch it now on our YouTube channel about uh, the, the, the toxicity of blue-green algae and walleyes that live in it and if that toxicity can be transferred into the meat of that walleye and then caught by an angler and then transferred to the human from from that fish it's it's some it's some pretty wild stuff and uh he was a pretty neat guy to meet down at uh, the aglow uh conference in branson did you get a chance to talk to him down there joe i'll tell you what i spent a lot of time with ollie uh we we had many dinners together we hung out at some of the hospitality nights and uh and, and no i i had seen ollie uh, uh seen him speak at a 
a National Professional Angling Association seminar, and I was very impressed. I also am Facebook friends with him, and I know he, he fishes walleye tournaments, but he's also a biologist, and he fishes Lake Erie a lot, which that's where I got my captain's license. I fish a tournament there every year, and so we have a lot in common, and just a you know, re- really a nice guy and a very credible guy and just a passionate walleye angler, just like I am, you know. He fishes multi-species, too. He ice fishes as well. We were talking about fishing some of the harbors. Um, my, my buddies who got charter boats on Lake Erie, they, they'll, they'll sometimes go and catch panfish in the harbors where their boats are normally staged in the summertime. And and uh, he does the same thing. He knows those spots, you know, and he's dialed. He's dialed in. He's a great guy. But, yeah. you know, that topic you're talking about, that's one topic uh, – it's very interesting, but think of the things he's working on. Very interesting stuff. Oh, man, uh, much smarter than I am. Just <laughs> hands down, no question about it. And the gear that Who he's isn't? using. You know, well, hey, now. Um, but uh, fascinating guy. And I, and I was just, uh, we got Brandon Butler on this week's show, too, as well, Joe, on the full show, full podcast. And uh, I was just telling him just the people that that I've gotten to meet here in the last couple of years through a glow, uh, just some really neat people with some some really cool stories and uh, some interesting jobs in the outdoor field. Oh, Brandon. Yeah, he's I've known Brandon for a lot of years. Really sharp guy. Very nice guy. Um, Really also smarter than me. Yes. Yeah. Danny, I'm not going to say too much. I think there's a trend. <laughs> Who is it? <laughs> now, he's a really neat guy. I was glad to meet him and I was glad that he was on the show with us and what they're doing with Raceline and some of the prairie restoration and the other efforts they're doing for renewable energy is, is fascinating. All right, Joe, if people want to plan a trip to Lake of the Woods, Northwest Angle, Rainy River uh, yet this fall or start thinking about ice fishing, what should they do? You know, best place uh, for information is our website and that is Lake of the Woods MN. 852 million acres of public land, 147 million private properties, all in the palm of your hand. The number one hunting GPS app just got better. With hundreds of custom map layers, 3D and topographic maps, you can easily scout on the road or at home before you go. And now you can get important weather details, CWD detection, and even know what crops have been planted where. Get the most trusted hunting GPS app ever made. Onyx. Know where you stand with Onyx. Did you know there are more than 1,000 lakes in Ottertail County? Yep, and I'm going to fish as many as I can. I'm an outdoorsy otter. Nothing beats a full day of fishing for me. The lakes of Ottertail County give me plenty of options to lower my boat and snag the perfect catch. Not an outdoorsy otter? No problem. Ottertail County has something for everyone. You just need to find your inner otter. To find your inner otter, go to ottertaillakescountry.com. Man, it is the best time of the year. It's absolutely hands down my favorite. Probably in the, within the next, like October is probably my favorite month. It used to be September because my birthday was in September growing up and it was the beginning of the fall hunting seasons. But now I think October and November really kind of take the cake when it comes to uh, when hunting and uh, gets really good and the temperatures really start to drop because, man, it was like 80 degrees right, right around the end of September. And that's just that's just too much for me doesn't feel like fall yet. It's finally starting to feel that way. Uh, the waterfowl season is opening back up in Minnesota. Uh, the pheasant season is is kicking kicking off. We're uh, here soon. We're getting ready for uh, bow hunting. I got my bow tag. I'm starting to get excited for deer hunting. And uh, fall fishing is good, man. We had a great time in Ottertail County a couple weeks ago when we were up there fishing with Randon Olson. And I've been seeing Randon's post, Dan, coming through on social media lately. Randon has been on fire catching those muskies up there. I think we left him some... 
some good mojo. Yeah, that's probably it was probably our oh, fault. Us. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So if you want to get it, if you've never caught a muskie or if you haven't caught one, like in my case, I hadn't caught one since I was probably about 13 years old. Um, and I and I just was anxious to get out there and get them. He is absolutely on fire with muskies right now with Lockjaw Guide Service. So uh, go check him out. And we're going to talk more about Ottertail Lakes Country uh, right now with uh, with Eric Osberg. Eric, how's it going, man? It's excellent. How are you? I'm doing well. I'm excited. It's the best time of year. And, you know, I always joke about, I always joke about living at the cabin, right? Like people have a cabin on their favorite lake or a place where they can go hunt and fish and they go there on the weekends and it's fine. And then they hustle and bustle and work all day during the week. And I understand you have to go where the work is, but I like to go where the play is, right? I like to live at the cabin and find a way to make it work. Uh, so that you don't have to drive anywhere in a place like Ottertail County can do that because there's there's so many opportunities. I mean, we went from duck hunting in Ottertail County on the opener Saturday and Sunday and literally just turned around that when musky fishing with Randon on Monday and uh, didn't have to go very far, Eric. And and then you could have gone crappie fishing on Tuesday and you could have gone walleye fishing on Wednesday and you could have gone bow hunting on Thursday, right? Like there's there's something for uh, something for everybody. And I will agree with you. October is absolutely my favorite month. Um, I do have an October birthday. So that's one of the reasons <laughs> I, I you mentioned you had a September birthday. Yeah. So I've always loved October. But October is like if if you could just bottle October and have it for 12 months, may, oh, maybe man. it would lose its maybe it would lose its appeal. It would be just be too much fun. But no, I agree. October is the absolute best month, especially if you're an outdoors enthusiast. Um, well, that, and I grew up playing football, of course, so it was always fun uh, to get out there. And I know you've been you've been on the football field quite a bit lately, Eric. Yeah, I, I, I've been making time for football and not necessarily making time for fishing lately. I, I am uh, co-coaching the Wadena Deer Creek Junior High football team. Um, I... I Football was a big part of my life when I was a kid and, and all the way through college. And so, yeah, there, there's Dan's on the spot right there. Um, I, I, okay, so here's, here's what I've been thinking. And maybe this will apply for your listeners, viewers, maybe not. I have found that I really enjoy teaching kids something, anything. Okay, now for me, I enjoy teaching kids how to fish and I enjoy teaching kids how to play football. And if, and if there's anybody out there who's, lacking or missing something or wish that there was more to life. And I don't want to get all, uh, I don't know what, what you'd call it. I don't want to get all theological on you, but if you feel like there's something missing in your life, figure out something that you enjoy teaching kids to do. Uh, it doesn't matter what it is. And, and I've just, I've been having so much fun coaching football. It's been, it's been unbelievable. Uh, plus it's the only place that, that people listen to me. You know, so, so I get, I get to have a whistle and I get to yell, you know, you know what I mean? Like I get to be the boss for, for an hour and 45 minutes every day. So that's, that's kind of fun. But uh, no, uh, fall is my favorite time of year. Um, we have been out on the water a little bit. Uh, we went out last weekend. Water temps were uh, right at the 62 degree range, 62 degree mark. Um, I, I, those smallmouth, I, I think I thought I, I had a plan. For those smallmouth, I'm like, well, let's go back to it. They were gone. There was there was not a fish to be found. Hmm. Um, I did find I did find some fish, like deeper weeds, like 
20 feet um, right at the bottom. Of, they were bass and bluegills and, and some crappies, so um, it was nothing necessarily to write home about. But uh, water temps are coming down, and and it's still early October, so, so we still got, you know, a month, month and a half of, uh, yeah, that was out. I was full moon. I was full moon trolling. That was actually, that was a pretty good little bite. Um, I was pulling, uh, I was pulling number seven flicker shads, but they were shallow flicker shads. They weren't the full lipped flicker shads. And, and I was, um, I was guiding, I was taking some clients out, um, and, and there was weeds. It was, it was, you know, 10, 11 feet of water and the weeds were like halfway up. And so what that number seven shallow flicker shad did is it rode like halfway through the wall water column. We caught crappies, we caught walleyes, we caught more pike than you. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. We caught some crappies, hmm. uh, caught some walleyes and, and it was, uh, it was, it was a fun time. So, um, that was, uh, that was, that was a couple weeks ago. So I think things have changed a little bit since then, but, but anytime you can get on the water is good. For yeah. Me. Uh, Dan and I had planned to do during the split here, we planned on doing some fishing and uh, it's it was a struggle trying to get out there, just trying to find time. I think that that was that was the problem. Like it was the waterfall split, and during that first week of the waterfall season, we hunted pretty much every day, hunted or fished pretty much every day. So I think we had a little catching up on work to do once we got to the split. So it's been it's been hard to get out on the water, but it's uh, it's that time of year where it's tough to decide which one one you, you want to do if you want to hunt, if you want to fish. And generally, I try to do both when I can, Eric. And as long as the weather cooperates, you know, when it gets windy this time of year, I I, call me what you want, but I, I don't mind sitting a, sitting a day out if it's blowing out there in the fall. I don't really feel like fighting the wind and the waves out there so much uh, anymore. And I know we were going to try to fish when we were up there, and she was blowing pretty good, and we just didn't get to get out. So we'll have to try to get something planned, Eric. We'll get out. And ice will be here before you know it. I do. How did waterfall go for you guys? Did you guys get birds? We did. It was... Um, I'll tell you what, Saturday morning in Ottertail County, there were a lot of guys out duck hunting because it definitely reminded me of of those days on opening morning when you hear gunshots in every direction. So definitely it was a good morning for a lot of people on Saturday, but there were a lot of people out and there were people on the pond next to us. It, w- it was crowded and and uh, we got ducks, but the pond that we, we hunted was almost completely dry. Like oh, conditions, really? conditions are very, very dry, of course, around the region right now. Uh, so in, in our case, it was a pond that uh, has been hunted historically. It's kind of a tradition to go there. And in years past, it hasn't been an issue. Last year, I guess it was a little dry up there too. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, it's one of those deals where if you don't go and, you know, it's it's a scouting versus tradition, right? Like. Right. You, you, you can go for the tradition. You might just not have as much success. And, and it was fun to go. And honestly, I had a blast. I just carried a camera. I didn't, I don't think I even loaded my gun. And uh, I, I watched these guys shoot some teal. And my dad, who's 82, came out for the opener. And I got to sit with my dad and, <clears throat> and watch him, you know, watch him shoot at ducks on, uh, on duck opener once again. So it was, a, it was a special time for us. That's cool. And you did, so you didn't go home empty handed. Is that what you're no, saying? No, no, no. No, we, yeah, uh, that's dry. Holy smokes. That's dry. Yeah. Oh gosh. And that mud, that mud was like, it was like stepping in, uh, in concrete, just that it would just seal up around your boot or your waders. And, uh, it would take about four pulls to get, to get one leg out. 
and then he'd step forward and then he'd do the same thing with the other leg. Just nasty, mucky stuff. But that looks like work. <laughs> Dan Dan set up the decoys and we would you put out six decoys yeah, in a spinner? Like a half dozen. <laughs> I had a whole bag and I threw a few out and I said no. Well, because there was so little water. It's yeah. like the ducks are gonna yeah. land here. If they're gonna yeah. land here, they're gonna land here no matter what. It doesn't matter how right. many decoys. Just a little out. wet spot. And I just stayed out and kind of helped my dad get set up. And all of a sudden Dan just came walking out of the cattails and just laid down oh. on his back, spread out. And I was like, oh, how, how is it out there? And I don't even know if you responded. I, I don't took, know. Took you might have been dead. Took a quick nap before yeah. I picked up the shotgun. But I'll tell you what, there was, you know, ducks love shallow water, so they're going to like that. A little more water would have been nice. I think we would have done a little bit better because the pond next to us had more water and they definitely had more shooting over there. But it, but that little bit of water was still full of freshwater shrimp. So the ducks mm. still wanted to be in there. And when it's shallow like that, it just makes it easier for easier for them to feed. So we, we shot our birds. We had a great time. We stayed at a neat little place uh, back in the woods. It was kind of a, uh, a fun experience. And, of course, we got to go fish with Randon. But that was the very end of a long summer's worth of trips all over the place. So it was a great way to finish. And then we came home after that. And it was, uh, it was the first time other than I think one day we'd, we'd spent at home in the previous month before that. So it was a fun time. So, and did you find that you, I know you called me or messaged me and you were like, Hey, we need a place to stay. Um, where did you, I know you stayed at a cabin one night, but did you find a place to stay then? In, yeah. We in our yeah, we you mentioned a couple of places you suggested, and we ended up going up to Pelican Rapids and staying at the Pelican Motel there, which I've driven by, Eric, I don't know how many times I've driven by that place and seen the Pelican out on the front and uh, hadn't been there. So when you suggested, I was like, all right, I know that place and, and went in there and I was actually really impressed with the rooms. Obviously they've done some renovating there. It's, it was a nice, nice place. And the woman there was, I think she works one day a week, helps out the owners. Uh, one of the nicest people I, I've met in a long time. It was, it was a great experience. Yeah, no. And that, that motel is a good example of, of kind of the, the rebirth that's happening in Ottertail County, kind of countywide. I mean, the, those owners came in, they've, they've, They've made some investment into the facility, and, and I think they've turned it into a really nice place. And I, I think it's dog-friendly, right? Like, were you able to bring your dogs in? And I sure was. I sure was. Uh, I will say I apologize to the Pelican Motel. One dog was a little muddy, and I had to get her. I had to give her a bath, so one of the towels got a little dirty. I, I tried to clean the towel off. But I apologize. I'll get you a new towel if I need to. But yeah, and what was nice because there was no carpet in there, which makes it great. Other than you hear the dogs walking around all the time, but it's so easy to clean up after pets yep. in a in a hotel room like that. Yeah, and so that's one of the you know you know especially for hunters out there, like when you're trying to find a place to stay, the pets are are a big part of it. And so Pelican Motel, if you're a hunter or an angler and you have a pet that you need to bring, and you're going to be up in the northwest portion of the county, I highly recommend. Pelican Motel. They're a good place. There's a there's another place called Lakes Inn at Dunvilla, which isn't too far away, um, and and that's got a, a a cool vibe too. So um, plenty of places to stay in Ottertail County for coming up for the weekend. And we can search those places on your website, can't we? You can. We have a whole section dedicated just to stay, and it's you know kind of portioned off. We've got your hotels and motels. You've got your resorts, bed and breakfasts. RV parks, all that stuff. So no, if uh, on our website, uh, if uh, there you go, where to stay? Uh, did I get it? Yeah. So there's resorts, cabins, <laughs> RV camping, hotels, motels. Um, there's all all sorts of places to stay. And and I, you know, so I mentioned the Lakes Inn and Dunvilla is a good one. 
Uh, Battle Lake Inn and Suites, if you're down more towards the middle of the county, uh, Battle Lake Inn, I think it's called now. Again, it, it's it's another very, very clean, very modern uh, establishment. Um, and uh, some of them are pet friendly, some aren't. But if you, if you reach out to them, they'll let you know. Well, the beauty of, you know, most guys that are hunters, usually they got trucks and kennels. So if they can bring their dog in, great. As long as it's not going to get too cold out, of course. But uh, you can bring your dog in or if you have to, you can usually you've got a place you can leave them in the truck if you need to. But um, no, it was great. It was a great time up there. We're looking forward to getting back up. And uh, Eric Osberg, Otter Tail Lakes Country. uh, Good luck. Do you still got games? The football season's still going, right? Football season isn't over yet. Um, um, I'm proud of our team. We, our last game, we, we, we stumbled a bit our last game. We, we had learned we had learned how to be physical and how to tackle, I thought, right? Like the first three games, we, we looked we looked good defensively, even offensively, we were very physical. Um, the last game, not so much. So we'll see we'll see if they remember how to be physical or not because uh, that's a big part of it. so we'll uh, We'll have fun one way or the other. It's been it's been a fun season. So so no, I uh, can't wait. I, I am looking forward to putting this, you know, moving to the next phase and, and getting getting on the water or the ice or or the woods a little bit more. So it'll be well, good. We'll be talking about ice fishing soon enough. Uh, Eric Osberg, Otter Tail Lakes Country. Thanks for the time today on the show and good luck the rest of the season. Thanks you too. Sporting Journal Radio is a division of Macaba LLC. If you've got a question, comment, or story idea for us, send us an email go to sportingjournalradio.com. While you're there, you can learn how to advertise on the show and visit our store for hats, hoodies, coffee mugs, and more. Go to sportingjournalradio.com.